This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and this is the Are They 18 Yet podcast, where I help parents raise independent, self-sufficient kids without sacrificing their own identity and sense of purpose. I'm here to share practical day-to-day solutions for raising kind, successful, well-adjusted human beings, and actionable advice for supporting systemic changes so we can make this world a more inclusive, accepting place now and for future generations. Hey there, this is Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 47 of the Are They 18 Yet podcast. In this episode, I actually am going to take an unexpected turn that I didn't intend to take when I started preparing to record this episode, because as I was doing some research and compiling my thoughts, I went down a couple rabbit holes, and I thought that it would just be best to really just share the process with you to share how I make decisions when it comes to both the techniques that I would try with a potential student or client that I am working with, and when it comes to mentoring others, whether it be other speech pathologists, teachers, parents, as far as how to actually help their kids. So, Really what we're talking about is what does it actually mean when people say follow the science, follow the research, follow evidence-based practices and things like that? Because it didn't used to be so muddled, but now in the present times, the whole idea of following the science and trusting the science and trusting the experts, it doesn't mean what it used to mean, and I don't want to go down too far of a rabbit hole as far as getting into the politics on some of the present issues going on right now as I'm recording this. It's January 2022, so I think you all probably know what I mean when I say a lot of those things. But I wanted to share today 
how I make decisions when it comes to all of those things and my recommendations and just some of the things that I've experienced when it comes to actually looking at some of the research and then looking at how that actually applies to real life. Because as a person who has done research, who has had a couple articles published in peer-reviewed journals, and is familiar with that process to some extent, or I at least have some experience with with that. But then I also have a lot of practical experience with working with, with real people. And it all sounds all fine and good when you say, all right, we're going to do research and then teachers or therapists are going to read the research and then they're going to apply it in their classrooms or in their therapy sessions with kids. And then they're going to share it with parents and the parents are going to follow through. All of that sounds great. But as you probably know, it's easier said than done. So I wanted to today, I'm going to highlight one common study that is taught to teachers as far as something that is has been promoted as a this is what works in the schools it's been used in informing certain educational policies as well at the political level and as i started to dig into some of the information out there on it because i used to just believe it unquestioningly and just i assumed that everything that was done was was great. And as I dug into information further and and did some more research, I found that there were quite a few critical reviews of this work. So I wanted to share those different opinions as well because to be honest, it as a clinician, as a teacher, as a parent, it's really hard to understand what is in line with peer-reviewed research because there's a lot of statistical analyses and they get very confusing. And unless you're a statistician, it's really hard to know what all of those things mean and how to actually interpret that information. So the default would be just trusting the experts. But again, people don't always feel comfortable doing that these days. People want to be informed. So I wanted to just Again, share a little bit of my perspective on that as a person who has been on all sides of the table as a parent, as a person who has worked in the schools, and then as a person who has mentored clinicians. So the specific study or a person whose work I'm going to be looking at today is John Hattie, who is an educational researcher, and he has done a lot of work in in calculating effect sizes, so different variables that are intended to have practical significance as far as informing what teachers do. And his book or his his study that he has published is called Visible Learning. So I'm going to dive into that today. And then I'm also going to include some of the critical critiques of his work including my own thoughts on the topic and the the perspectives that have been presented. So before I get going, I wanted to share a resource that is available on my website. And actually, as I dig into this critique, I'm going to talk about one of the strategies that did come up in John Hattie's work, the strategy of sentence combining. 
And I will explain a little bit more about what this is, but if you want a little bit more background on why I promote sentence combining and why it's something I recommend, I also recommend that you check out my last two episodes, episode 45 and episode 46, where I talk about the impact of syntax on language comprehension, specifically for students who are struggling with language processing. So episodes 45 and 46, I shared some of the information that is in my ultimate guide to sentence structure that outlines some of the common sentence types that tend to be difficult for students who are not making progress with high-level comprehension strategies like sedating the main idea and answering questions or retelling things that they've read. A lot of the strategies that are taught in classes when it comes to helping kids comprehend. So again, as I've said before, I'm not against any of those strategies. It's just that for students who are struggling with language, sometimes they need to build some of those foundational skills that are going to support that high-level comprehension. And I really outline why that's the case and what you can do about it in the Ultimate Guide to Sentence Structure. So to grab that guide, just go to my website. Again, you can download it at drkarenspeech.com. Again, it's right on the main page of my site. That is really the site where I have a lot of my resources for speech pathologists, but also teachers and parents have also found value in it as well. Again, that's drkarenspeech.com to download that ultimate guide to sentence structure. Okay, so let's get started on this discussion of what it actually means to follow the research when it comes to education and therapy or just what you do with your kids. If you're a parent, teacher, clinician, or whatever your role is, maybe you have multiple roles. I think many of my listeners do. So anyways, to give you a little bit of a background on who John Hattie is, this is something that a lot of my colleagues, something that I learned when I was going through schooling, and it was kind of promoted as this be-all, end-all, this is the godfather of educational research kind of thing. So a lot of people, you know, when you're going through school and, and you're professors tell you this is legit, you kind of just automatically believe it. So who John Hattie is, is a professor of education from New Zealand. And his main brand, I guess you would say, or thing that he is about is evidence-based teaching, which of course, who wouldn't want to be for that? I mean, I'm for that. So what that actually means or, or how it has been defined is using only methods that have been verified by evidence, which again, of course, that sounds good on paper. So what he actually did is that he published a collection of data based on a number of different meta-analyses and shared their effect sizes. So he looked at all these different factors from just student factors like socioeconomic status and, and gender and things that can't necessarily be changed by the teacher 
and then also things that a teacher can actually do or just different arrangements like class size, um, different teaching strategies that teachers could do and looked at all of those things and ranked them in order of effect size, basically meaning how effective they were or how much impact they had on student achievement. So again, on paper, all of that sounds great. And I'm not saying that this should be completely dismissed, but I am saying that we should review it critically and not just accept it at face value. Because essentially, isn't that what we would want our students to do is just not take a piece of information and assume automatically it's true based on this person published it or somebody told them that it must be true. Because ultimately, that is how scientific research should work. It doesn't matter who published what or how credible people think they are. It really should be about the methods and the evidence, not how popular somebody is. Even though, let's be honest, in the real world, that is how it goes sometimes. So before I go on, I wanted to talk about what an effect size is and then what a meta-analysis is. Even though, like I said, if you are a professional, you may have heard these terms before, but I wanted to just make sure everybody was on the same page. So an effect size is a statistic that can be calculated that is intended to explain how meaningful a relationship is between variables and let us know how practically significant that outcome is. So for example, if there is a particular teaching strategy that's listed in the visible learning summary, we'd be able to look at the effect size, see how big it is, and that could let us know how effective that particular strategy is in improving student outcomes. That's how it's supposed to work. And generally speaking, an effect size of 0.4 or higher is considered above average, meaning that it's very practically significant and thought to be effective in improving student outcomes. And then a meta-analysis is a statistical analysis that looks at the results of multiple scientific studies that are looking at the same variables. So it combines all of the results together in a combined statistical analysis. And an example of this would be if we looked at a particular math intervention over the course of 20 years and combined the analyses of studies that were done over a 20-year period to get what the combined effect size is for that particular intervention. And the reason that people do this is because if you have one study, a lot of times the sample size might be small. And so generally speaking in research, you want to look at multiple studies because over time that does help to give additional clarity in how effective something is because sometimes if you have one individual study, there are always going to be limitations to it because of sample sizes being small, of variables being present that might indicate that something else could have caused the impact on whatever the outcome was. So 
generally speaking, it's just the assumption that looking at multiple sources of information is better than looking at just one source of information. So that's why in many cases, a meta-analysis has been by some considered kind of the gold standard for scientific research. The challenge with that is that if you're looking at something over a 20-year period and you need an answer right now as far as what to do with your students, you're kind of out of luck because sometimes it can be hard to find all of that information and it takes a long time to get that information. And I'm going to mention couple other things in a minute here, but but basically those are some of the things that were used in the visible learning summary that was published by John Hattie and that has been taught in universities and, and also used by certain policymakers that are trying to figure out where funding should go within the school systems and things like that. So I wanted to talk about some of the critiques of John Hattie's work because a lot of the information that I had initially read about the work is kind of like, here it is and it's great and we should listen to it. But when I dug a little bit further, and and the reason I did that is because some of the things on the list that had been deemed to have a large effect size or that were deemed to have a small effect size were things that were not consistent with what I had seen in my clinical work and also things that were inconsistent with current research that I have read about what works specifically for the populations that I work with. Because with a meta-analysis, because you're combining a lot of different studies, I thought, you know, there's a chance that some of that information might not take those individual differences into account. And it it made me wonder and question whether the students in the meta-analyses in the summary were students who had language processing issues. Because if they didn't, then the results of that particular summary might not necessarily apply to my students. Because as I've said before, A lot of the interventions that I recommend are not always things that are done in the classroom. And the reason is because a lot of students don't necessarily need these intensive interventions to the level that would be required for, let's say, a student who is struggling and does need that additional intervention. So when you are looking at averages across huge samples, there are good aspects to that and that you have a lot of data, but the negative aspects are is if you have some unique differences, those might not necessarily come out in the study because as you probably know, when we're looking at a group of students, if you were to take even just, let's say one grade level and average all of the students' performance based on the impact of one intervention, you're going to have those outliers and those students who don't respond and don't fit into that average. So that is what led me to question some of the things that I was reading in the Hattie study. And as I was digging, I did find some additional critical reviews that that confirmed some of my suspicions. So I wanted to just share a couple of the things that were shared. And then also I will share links in the show notes 
uh, just to let you know, some of the explanations were from statisticians, so they do get a bit thick and meaty, but I wanted to share those links just in case you wanted some additional information. And if you would also like to go down a Hattie rabbit hole, as I did this morning. So here are a couple things that I found. One critique that I did find interesting was done by a professor named John O'Neill. One of his critiques was called, instead of visible learning, called invisible learning. And I did find a couple additional blog posts that linked to some public letters that O'Neill wrote, and then also some of Hattie's rebuttals. But one of the main critiques that O'Neill had of Hattie's work was that he did use some studies that he found to be inappropriate or irrelevant. So the visible learning summary was intended to inform education at the elementary through high school level, but a lot of the studies that were in the meta-analysis did not include subjects that were in that age range and were not drawn from an actual educational setting where, where schooling was happening. So some of the subjects were adults, some of them were medical personnel like doctors or nurses, and some of them were PhD university students. And that does happen sometimes with educational research. If somebody is conducting research at a university, some of the people who end up being participants are college students. And Depending on what you're studying, that might be fine. But if you want to look at the impact of educational interventions on school-age students, you have to look at the impact of educational interventions on school-age students. And according to this critique, some of the studies in the meta-analysis did not do this. So as a result, we can't necessarily draw effective conclusions from the effect sizes. So the critique from O'Neill was just not that we should throw out the whole idea, but just that we should recalculate some of the effect sizes and remove some of this data that might be skewing it in the wrong direction because it wasn't necessarily taken in a setting that was relevant with participants who are similar to those that we're applying this research to, meaning school-age children. And then an additional critique, which I have heard from many clinicians and many teachers when they read research from people who are doing research, but they're not necessarily in the trenches. Maybe they're working at a university and they haven't been in a classroom for a long time. And I'm not saying that all researchers are like that. There are a lot of researchers who do fantastic collaborations with people who are in real life settings, but there is still a disconnect sometime. And that critique is that this Meta-analysis and meta-analyses in general don't necessarily paint a clear picture of what actually happens in a real-life classroom. And I have also heard therapists say, well, 
I know what your data says, but that contrived situation you've created with your data doesn't necessarily paint a picture of what practically happens in a therapy setting. And one of the reasons that O'Neill specifically gave in making this critique is that when you're compiling all this data together, then you lose those individual differences, as I said before, and as a result, that leads to not seeing certain nuances that might be relevant to teachers to know what they should actually do for students who don't fall in that average range. So I wanted to talk about one specific thing that has been debated a lot because this is something that Hattie's research has been used to inform as far as educational policy, and that's class size. And a lot of people assume, well, smaller class sizes are better. But what a meta-analysis might not see is, okay, which specific subgroups of students and what other factors interact with class size? Meaning, do all students need a smaller class or do certain students need a smaller class? And you could say the same thing for some of the interventions that were or weren't considered effective based on the effect sizes that Hattie found. So for example, if you lump all students together, students who are gifted, students who are doing well in the general education curriculum that don't have any diagnosed disabilities, and then students who have disabilities, then, and you're lumping them all together, and you're assuming that one intervention is going to have the same impact on all of them, and just kind of aggregating this data all in one, then again, you don't see those subtle nuances to be able to tell do all the students need this intervention or do some of them need this intervention? Maybe there's not a large effect size for the general student population in certain interventions. Maybe class size doesn't matter as much for students who are high achieving. But for other students, maybe it does matter. But if we're going to put all of this together without looking at those nuances, we're not necessarily going to be giving teachers and clinicians and parents the information that they need in order to make practical decisions. Again, we can't lump people together into one single statistic. And believe me, I am an analytical person. I like data. I like numbers. And I find them extremely useful but not when we are looking at them myopically. So really the critique done by O'Neill wasn't necessarily saying, let's throw all of this out. Really what he was asking, and he does list some additional factors and things that he wanted to be recalculated because he found studies that were irrelevant or something that, you know, again, there was an issue with a participant sample. And he, he listed a bunch of them out. And I will link to some of this rather than going through all of them. But, but really what he was asking for was a more critical critique rather than taking this information at face value. So I would agree with that, that yes, this probably gives us some practical information. But when we look at these effect sizes, and we highlight them, 
then what we want to do is dive into them and look at the nuances before we use them to make these global decisions for everyone. And after further digging, I did find some additional critiques aside from O'Neill's. There were questions about the practical significance of using effect size unquestioningly. That continues. And then even though Hattie did publish some defenses, a lot of his critics did not feel he really addressed any of the issues they brought up. And and they continued to have concern about the studies that he included, the weight of the studies in the meta-analysis. So, for example, there were some studies that had poor design that were given equal weight to studies that had a really solid design, and so on. So, I will share links to some of those defenses, the rebuttals, and the conversation back and forth for those of you who want to look further into this. But the way that I continue to make my decisions is, yes, I definitely pay attention to meta-analyses. I will definitely continue to follow Hattie's work because even though I don't agree with all of the conclusions, I think it's really important to follow work that you don't agree with just so that you have a balanced opinion. And I will additionally follow the work of his critiquers as well. But what I really use right now in order to make clinical decisions is current research based on what works for students with language processing issues, because that is the primary population that I am focused on. And when we look at these big meta-analyses that include students of all different ability levels and with different factors, it doesn't necessarily apply to the populations that I'm working with. So I do refer to some of the research that looks specifically on what students who have language difficulties need in order to succeed. And again, that can't necessarily be answered by looking at what works for everybody, because we know that what works for everybody is clearly not working for them if they're requiring some extra support. Because when you actually look at the list of things that have an impact on student achievement, according to Hattie, teachers are doing a lot of the things that he has on, on the list. <laughs> now, I wanted to draw attention to one specific thing on the list that has a small effect size, and that is sentence combining. So in my ultimate guide to sentence structure, that is one of the strategies that I recommend for students who are not responding to traditional comprehension type strategies and are having a hard time processing language. And also this could be for students who are struggling with written language as well. And they are having a hard time comprehending at the sentence level and as a result are also not processing the big picture of what they're listening to or what they're reading. Because there are quite a few studies that do show it has a positive impact on reading and writing and comprehension. So I will link to some of those studies rather than go through them 
one by one so that you do have them for a reference. Some of them you can't get the full text, but there are a handful of summaries that do have full text that you can read through that explain how sentence combining can be used and some of the populations that have had a positive impact when this intervention has been done. A lot of the research has been done with students who have learning disabilities, so specifically students who are having a difficult time with grammar and reading as well as high-level comprehension. So even though the critiques have gone through a number of the factors that Hattie summarized as having a positive effect or negative effect or whatever it is, the point being that there are a lot of people who have challenged some of those effect sizes. And I haven't really heard a lot in the reviews that I have read or seen. I haven't seen a lot of comment on the sentence combining strategy specifically, but that would be my critical review of the effect size is that it actually does, when you look and drill down into specific studies that have looked at sentence combining and you take into account some of those individual factors that may not be apparent when you combine a ton of studies all in one and when you don't take into account individual characteristics of the students and it all kind of gets muddled together, again, you don't see those nuances and that is not necessarily consistent with some of the other research that has been published more recently. It's definitely not consistent with what I have seen directly in my clinical practice. And and that's why I still continue to recommend this technique and why it can actually be pretty powerful. So in my sentence structure guide, I do cite some studies that support that technique. I also support some I also cite some research that cites the importance of syntactic skills in comprehension. And then in the show notes, I will cite some additional studies, some of which are not cited in that sentence structure guide, just so that you have some additional resources to look through. But the main thing is, is that when you actually look at more recent research of sentence combining, and when you consider the specific factors that are being measured, again, when Hattie looked at his meta-analysis, he's saying student achievement. And the question is, well, how are you measuring student achievement? So that's another one of my critiques is that, yes, sometimes when you're looking at things like comprehension and expression, you might see some additional skills improve before there's an impact on grades. And grades are not the only way to measure student achievement. We want to look at functional skills like the ability to communicate and articulate and understand what you're reading or hearing. And there might be other things, you know, you could develop better processing skills, but there might be other skills getting in the way of whether or not you get a good grade, but you still might be improving. So that is something else that we want to consider when we're looking at these big effect sizes. What is the outcome that they're measuring? Well, maybe there isn't a large effect size on grades, but does that mean that it's not a relevant skill to someone's life? 
So we've got to be able to drill down and not necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater with these kinds of things. So maybe when you look at a large group of students with all ages and ability levels, and and yes, there were the issues of some of the participants in the meta-analysis not even being school-age students. So there is that issue. But let's say that there isn't a significant effect size when you combine everyone together. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be an impact on specific groups. That doesn't necessarily mean that there won't be an impact on other skills that are relevant to a student's life besides grades. And that also doesn't necessarily mean that when you combine interventions together with other things and look at some of the specific aspects of how the instruction is delivered, that you won't see some positive effects. So that's why I look at these specific studies where I can tell what the individual characteristics are and continue to ask those questions and just continue to revise the information that I know that's out there. It's not good scientific research if you draw a conclusion and you never ask additional questions or revise it or add to it. So that's why it's not necessarily good practice to see someone as this be-all, end-all guru that can't be questioned. Yes, certain people might be providing tremendous value, but that doesn't mean that their work shouldn't be looked at critically and that we shouldn't look into specific limitations and try to fix them. Because according to the critics of Hattie's work, he hasn't adequately done this and hasn't adequately addressed some of the flaws and limitations in the research. It's always good to be transparent about those things, but being transparent alone doesn't necessarily fix the issues. So I would I would argue that when we look at pieces of information like this, that we just want to be good, good consumers and think about these things and teach our kids to think about these things as well. So with all that being said, I will link to some of these critical reviews that I've mentioned. Some of them are blog posts with links to other things. And then I will also link to the Visible Learning website that does have the summary of Hattie's most recent analysis. And also I will link to some of these specific studies that do address things like sentence comprehension. And then finally, I'll link to my sentence structure guide where I do go into one of the interventions that was analyzed in the Hattie meta-analysis. And again, one of which I would challenge his findings based on recent research and other research that's been done over the years. So check out the show notes for all of that. I hope you found it useful. And if you want to directly download that sentence structure guide where I outline the sentence combining technique that can support the syntax that kids need in order to have strong comprehension skills, then you can go directly to my website, drkarenspeech.com and sign up for that guide and get a summary of those techniques, as well as the sentence types that tend to be difficult for kids who have language processing issues. So again, that's drkarenspeech.com, 
or the show notes for the additional links that I've mentioned in this episode. So we'll wrap up for now. Again, remember, it helps us so much if you share this information with your friends or your colleagues and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts, whether it be Apple or Spotify or another podcast directory. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you in the next episode. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out My Flex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE.